All right, third Sunday in uh, 2013, third Sunday in uh, the new year. If you made any resolutions, how are you doing with them? You already broken them? You quit with them? Maybe you didn't make any. One guy wrote about his and he said, I made six resolutions for last year and I can truthfully say I kept all six of them without fail. He said, I kept them in the top drawer of my desk. You know, uh, one of the difficulties we have is, is um, in making resolutions that we know uh, that somewhere along the line we're going to break them. And uh, even this uh, third week into the new year, we've probably broken some of our resolutions. It's, uh, it's, uh, if you take it seriously and you go by the uh, dictionary, what Webster says about a resolution, it says that it is a firm decision and a strong commitment to a course of action. Uh, that's why some people don't make resolutions. Maybe what we ought to do instead of making resolutions is to, uh, is to set some goals. And then we can monitor those goals uh, monthly. Uh, we can monitor them by on a quarterly basis, you know, uh, uh, and keep up with how we're doing with our goal setting in terms of whatever it might be uh, with, our, with our life and where we think we need to make some of those goals or resolutions. Uh, you might just want to give up with, with serious uh, resolutions that take a lot to keep and go with uh, this guy's resolutions. He's, uh, I think there are 10 New Year's resolutions that we could all keep without any trouble. He said, first of all, gain weight, at least 30 pounds. Stop exercising, it's a waste of time. Read less, it makes you think. Stop cooking, you should eat out more. Get more credit cards. Break at least one traffic law. Some of you probably did that on the way here today. Focus on the faults of others, not yourself, but others. Sleep in every chance you get. Go on a chocolate-only diet. Now, you will always benefit from the 845 crowd. One lady went out and she says, I have a resolution. I'm going to eat something green every day as long as it's dipped in chocolate. I said, tell me how that works out for you. And then finally, never make New Year's resolutions. Well, now, let us be serious about some for a while, okay? If you've made some resolutions for this year of a serious nature, now, we've challenged you to read through the Bible this year and offered you uh, from WMHK a reading plan. Or some of you have told me about the Bible you've got, the one-year Bible, chronological or otherwise, that, that you're reading. Uh, I'm using one walk through the Bible that, uh, uh, that I've done in, in the past, but I like the insights that it gives and um, uh, I'm, I'm even ahead of reading through uh, because I've been enjoying going back through and reading these Old Testament stories. So if you've done something like that, uh, uh, this is day 20. Stay with it. Uh, experts who study these things tell us that we need 21 days of a pattern repeated in our life for that to become a consistent part of our life. Tomorrow is day 21. So if you've made some of those decisions to tithe for the first time, and some of you maybe indicated to us that you did, uh, you're going to read your Bible through. You're going to have a daily quiet time with God. Uh, you're going to be more faithful in, in your attendance at church. Then stay with it. This is just the day 20. And so stay with it now and hang in there. Uh, and do remember the definition that we've talked about, about a resolution. A firm decision and a strong commitment to a course of action. Now, in these three weeks, uh, the first three weeks of January, as I'll be preaching on this little theme, I resolve, I hope that we will make uh, a firm commitment 
to these three resolutions. First of all, we talked about I resolve to be a new person. And we talked about we can only become a new person through the power of Christ. And we talked about that out of 2 Corinthians 5 where Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Then last week we talked about I resolve to be committed to my church. And that you would make a commitment uh, to be more active, more involved in the part of the life of the church. And how significant it is uh, when we all come together and that we each have a part to play. And we are part of the church and we are compared to being the body of Christ. And then today we're going to talk about the resolution that says, I resolve to influence my community. Now when we use the word community, that could talk about a variety of places. In our Bible study classes... We create community. People come together and they form a cohesive group and, and they become a community. You could also describe the community as the community in which you live. Uh, so many of you live in developments uh, around the northeast area out here uh, that have specific names. And so that's your community as to where you live. But I want us to think about broadly around the life of, of this church out in northeast Columbia that the community we need to focus upon are, are the people in all of these communities outside the walls of this church who either do not know Christ as Savior or do not have a relationship with the local church. And so that's the community that we want to be uh, involved in. That's the community I want to challenge us this year to try to influence and to do so for the glory of God. You have to remember that God loved the world so much, and that included every one of us and every one of them out there, that he came to us in Jesus Christ and he gave us Jesus Christ, and not just for us to keep and embrace, but for us to be able to share with others and to influence with other people. So our church can't be just a refuge of where we gather once a week, or maybe Sunday morning and Wednesday night for some of the life classes, and we just want to take in that, that, that spiritual growth and just let this be a fortress for where we come and retreat on a weekly basis and, and we get nourishment and then we just go back out to make it in the world. But we've got to see this as a equipping center where we're equipped to go out in the community and influence our community. And we're going to look at a rather interesting uh, story today in the life of Jesus' ministry out of Mark 5. And when we read this together in a few minutes, you'll readily recognize that we could focus on, on many, many different aspects of, of this story. We could talk about uh, demon possessions and demonic activity and do Christians get uh, attacked by demons and can a Christian be, uh, in, uh, you know, have, have a demon possessed uh, possession in his or her life? Uh, but there's a stronger influence in here than Mark 5 that I want us to look at as we uh, come to this section of Scripture. When we go to Mark 5, at the end of chapter 4 in the Gospel of Mark, it's a dramatic scene, powerful scene. It's the story of where Jesus and the disciples were in the boat crossing the Sea of Galilee, and the storm came up. Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat. The disciples were timid of faith, and they were afraid they were going to die. They finally woke up Jesus. He calmed the sea, and they were absolutely amazed by this. Who is this man that can control nature, that speaks and compels nature to obey him? Well, then we go right into chapter 5 of Mark's gospel, and we see that that takes us into a setting where we see the power of Christ to change circumstances, even at a greater level. Let's begin reading. Before I do that, I better put on my glasses. Okay. All right, here we are. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, 
a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained, hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on a nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. I'll give you two insights on that. Somebody says, that's the first reference to deviled ham. And somebody else, I'm, this morning I'm in 845, I said the pigs made a swan dive into the lake. And somebody said, no, they made a, swan, a swine dive into the lake. Okay? So we're going back to the story. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Now, isn't that interesting? That they saw this man who had been demon-possessed, and now he is in his right mind. He's cleaned up. He's dressed. He's out of the tombs. He's no longer crying out, no longer cutting himself, and they were afraid. Wow, that's interesting. And those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. That's a powerful, interesting story, I think. One again that shows uh, another aspect of the power of Jesus to change lives from an absolutely profound uh, state of being demon-possessed to where that person then had the demons driven out and they were, he was in his right mind and clothed and sound and all of that. We meet a man here in this story, and Jesus met him as soon as he landed on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, um, who was changed forever. And he went out and began to influence his community. And while we could focus on a lot of other things in this story, that's the main thing we need to focus on. But Jesus did run the legion of demons out of this man into the herd of pigs. They did the swine dive. And instead of asking Jesus to stay and do more miracles such as that, the people were afraid and they asked Jesus to leave. And he did. Because, you see, if, if you don't want Jesus around and you don't want him in your life and you tell him to leave and you don't want him to be a part of your life, he'll leave. He'll go somewhere else. He'll go to somebody else. And that's exactly what happened here. They didn't want him to do anything. 
They were afraid of what might happen, maybe afraid of change that they didn't want to see happen in their life. And so they asked him to leave. But put the focus on the man who Jesus encountered and the change that took place in him. He started out by confronting Jesus and saying, what do you want with me? Swear to God that you won't torture me. Now, legion, I think, is the name that had been taken up by all the legion of demons that were in him. But let's give this guy a name. Let's change him to being, let's say, just so it will stick in your mind, something a little, you know, a little uh, like demonized Dan or demonized David or demonized Doug or Douglas, you know. So Jesus said, what is your name? And the demons responded and said, legion, for we are many. There's some disagreement on you do research about a legion. Some say that it's three to 6,000 soldiers in a Roman in the Roman army back at that time. Some say it's 6,000 to 12,000, including the entire entourage of Roman soldiers, from foot soldiers to the cavalry mounted on the beautiful horses, to those who are in chariots driving those, uh, to uh, musical um, soldiers, the band that was playing along with them, to the commanding officers. So it's varying, but it's a large number. Even you take the lowest number, 3,000. If a man is possessed with 3,000 demons, he's got a lot of them in his life and a lot of trouble. But they said legion because we are many. And then Jesus drives the demons out into the pigs. And then we see a demonized Dan, or whatever name you want to give him, that there he is, made whole, clean, sitting, clothed in his right mind, totally transformed by the power of Christ. And there once again I point out to you that that's when the people became afraid and they They ask him to leave, and he does. And he's just getting ready to leave. The man who'd been healed comes to Jesus and says, I want to go with you. And that's a logical thing for him to do. He'd been radically transformed. He wanted to go with Jesus. He wanted to see other powerful things like that take place. He wanted to be like the disciples and to be able to be close to Jesus and hear the teaching and see lives transformed close up. Nothing wrong in that. Well, I think one of the reasons a lot of people don't want to come to Jesus is that's what they think they're supposed to do and go sign up for missions in the Belgian Congo or go to China or somewhere like that. That's what Christ wants you to do. Pack everything up and go to seminary. He might. He might in all seriousness. But listen to what he told this man. He had another job for him to do, another area where he wanted him to work, something else he wanted him to do. He says, go home to your family and tell them How much the Lord has done for you. It's interesting when Jesus uses the word home, he could have meant his immediate home or he could have meant the surrounding community. And that's exactly what the man did. Because the scripture says he went away into the Decapolis, that's the region where he was with ten cities, and he began to tell them what the Lord had done for him. And it says that they were all amazed. Powerful story, isn't it? Well, it relates to us in this way. You, you might have need for Jesus in your life as this man did. And Jesus is the answer as the choir's already sung. Remember that. If you're dealing with other demons, I think they come in other forms. You might be dealing with the demon of, of being hooked to something. It might be drugs. It might be alcohol. It might be pornography. It might be to the credit card. You know, there's a lot of different demons you could have in your body. You know, and, and you might be in need of finding freedom from those from Christ. But the other thing that stands out in here is that we too are called to be an influence in the community where we live. 
in the community where we have our life experiences, where we know people, where we have relationships. And that's what we need to focus upon. Now, I know that some of you are probably beginning to shut me out and turn me off right now because you know where we're going with this. We're going to talk about evangelism and the need to share your faith. Well, let me tell you, there's a difference between evangelism and, there's a, and, and, and being a witness. Uh, evangelism is a gift, and certain people have it. They have that knack of being an evangelist. You think about Billy Graham as a great evangelist. He had that knack to have, have a, a, a tremendous influence to a crowd of people and preach to millions of people. And, and not all of us have that gift of evangelism. But witnessing, we have all been called to do. And that's just simply telling our story as to what God and Christ has done for us. And we're all called to do that. But we're all hesitant about doing that, aren't we? There was an article this week, I forgot what day it was, in the state paper, uh, of all things and of all places about an increase of armadillos in Orangeburg County. Did anybody read that story? I, I just thought that was interesting. I didn't know we had armadillos around. I just always associate that with out west, you know, Texas and those areas somewhere like that. And that reminded me of a story that Ken Davis, who's a Christian comedian, tells. If you read Mature Living, and I do, I'm old enough to read that, I read Mature Living, he has the back page where he writes something about some of his annex that he's experienced in life and something funny. He told a story one time about a guy who got on a bus one morning in the city, and he walked all the way to the back, he was the first one on, walked all the way to the back, sat down, and he prayed, and he says, Lord, if you want me to witness to somebody today, give me a sign. And lo and behold, at the next stop, nobody else on the bus but this one guy, a man gets on, he walks all the way to the back, sits down beside that believer who had just made that prayer, and he looks at him and he says, can you tell me anything about Jesus Christ? And Ken Davis says that Christian, excuse himself for a moment, slid over a little bit farther. He bowed his head and he prayed and he said, Lord, if you really want me to tell this man something about Jesus do another miracle and turn the bus driver into an armadillo. Maybe some of you have been praying for armadillos. What this story teaches us is the power of witnessing. And, and we need to understand that where we are is our mission field. And that we need to resolve to influence our community as we share and witnessing, simply telling our story. Now, if you're willing to accept that and make that a firm commitment and a firm plan of action for your life and resolve to be a better influence, I want to give you three guidelines. First of all, begin to influence your community with people around you. Where did Jesus tell this man to go? He said, go home. Let me remind you again, that could have been his immediate home. It could have been a surrounding community. I, that for, for what we read later on, the guy went in the whole area of those ten cities in the Decapolis, a big area. And that was where he was sent. That was where he was called to go. And that was where he was supposed to give his influence. And when we talk about connecting with our community, I'm not talking about going out to, to the Walmart or Target parking lot on a Saturday morning and just pinpointing people and just walking up to them without any relationship and ask them, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? If you died today, would you, would you go to hell or would you go to heaven? I mean, that's a reality. But I don't think that's the best way to approach people. I think the best way to do it is through relationships. And I think that's why Jesus sent this man back into that area of where he lived and where people knew him. 
I'm sure that word about this man and his demonic activities had gone all through that region of the Decapolis. And the people who saw him changed earlier recognized that change and they were afraid of it. They became afraid of Jesus. But this is where Jesus wanted him to go where he was known and to tell how he was changed. And that's what we're called to do is where we are. Start with people you know, the community that you know. Now, our youngest daughter, Sarah Lynn, is at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth. We have three people on our staff who went there. Rick McCollum went there, and Allison, not Kelly anymore, Allison Horton went there, and Phil went there. Now, I went to Southern. It takes three Southwestern graduates to equal one Southern graduate. You know what I'm saying? But since Sarah Lynn has been there, I've taken a greater interest in Southwestern and what's happening and, and the history there. And when I thought about evangelism, I thought about, and Rick agreed with this too, I always think about Dr. Roy Fish. Uh, he was a great evangelism leader and professor there at Southwestern. He died not too long ago. But I also discovered there was another man on faculty. After being a pastor for so many years, he became a member of the faculty at Southwestern uh, under Roy Fish's department, and he too taught evangelism. His name was Oscar Thompson, and he came up with a, a, a plan for sharing faith and witnessing uh, that became a book. His wife, after his death, took his notes and put it together as a book, and then Claude King, who worked together with Blackaby and Experiencing God, um, took it and updated it and revised it. And it's a, it's a great, great method for teaching people how to share their faith. But he talked about these concentric circles, and we'll see a diagram of it up here. And, and it's pretty simple. So it starts out with the core of where you start, and that's with yourself. You've got to make sure that you are right with God. I, I haven't flown in probably over a year, but uh, those of you who fly regularly, do they still give you the spill by the um, uh, flight attendant that they say in case of need of oxygen, the oxygen mask will drop down? They still do that? They talk about that? Do they still say, if you're traveling with someone who needs assistance or with young children, do what? Put your mask on first and then take care of them. Why? Well, you got your mask on, then you're taken care of, and you can work with them. And, you know, you got to make sure you're okay first and that you're taken care of, all right? So the same thing is true here. First of all, look at yourself. Am I right with God? Then start looking at the way that your life has out in these, in these concentric circles. How about your immediate family? Anybody in your immediate family that you need to start being a little bit more concerned about, praying a little bit more about, bringing up the, the, their relationship, a non-relationship with Christ. Then you expand that a little bit more to relatives. These could be aunts, uncles, cousins, whatever you see maybe once a year at Christmas or once a year at a family reunion or maybe not all that often. But you can correspond with them and you can stay in touch with them and you know of their spiritual condition and you can begin to have influence on them. Then it goes out to neighbors and business associates. Now, how many of you know the spiritual condition of neighbors around you where you live? Do you know the spiritual condition of the neighbor across the street or the neighbor to your left or the neighbor to your right? How about the family that lives behind you? See, I think most of the times we come in and we got our own things to do just because we're so busy and we want to get through today's activity and drive into the driveway, the garage door closes, we go in the house, and that's kind of where we stay. If you happen to be out on a bright, pretty day like it was yesterday and you're doing some yard work and your neighbor's out, you might throw up your hand and wave and say something. 
But how many of you really have a relationship with a neighbor and you know what their relationship is with Christ and it's lacking? Are you concerned enough to start bringing up spiritual things? Invite them over for a meal, have a prayer, you know, just those kinds of things have influence on them. And business associates, people you work with, if they don't know you're a believer, you're not living your life. So they, they need to know who you are and what you believe. And there will be opportunities at some point in time in their life. They will have a need that Jesus is the only answer to. And you need to be able to have shared that with them. And then you get on out to what you might call acquaintances. Like people you know, like say at the grocery store where you shop. Or the hardware place where you go. Or the guy that work, waits on you at Home Depot or, or Lowe's or you know, wherever it is. You know, and, and you've got to, you know them, you recognize them, and they know you, but that's as far as the relationship goes. That's an acquaintance. You can start working on that relationship until it eventually takes you out to person X out there. Somewhere out there, there's another person. You know, and, and if we use that, that theory about those concentric concerns, I, I think we'll find more and more opportunities if we make the resolution to influence our community. See, God has placed us where we are to influence our community. And it's more than just inviting people to come here. We need to do that. But we also have to go to where they are. If you'll take a look at your bulletin, you might have already looked at it. And let me tell you that, yes, this is for you. On the very back of the, you find the welcome on the back. On the other side of the welcome, why don't you take a look at it? Look at the bulletin. That's about Backyard Kids Club. We talked about this this week in staff meeting. And we, and Allison Kelly has a, Horton has a vision for this, that we've got a date set in July. You read that there. That would you like to host? If you're serious about this, wanting to influence your community, would you be willing to host a backyard kids club? If you don't want to do it in your place, would you be willing to work in another area? What would you like to do? We'll provide resources and training. Now we had some response for this in the, in the 845 worship. But you see, we're not just challenging you to say, go influence your community. We're giving, you, we're giving you an opportunity where we'll work side by side with you in doing this. Now, if you pray about that, you got any questions, talk to Allison. She'll be at the Welcome Center, I hope. They're a little bit short down in, um, in the children's area today, been holiday weekend and all. But um, she might be at the Welcome Center after the service. You got any questions, ask her. Some people are just ready to turn it in, and we got some good response. So if you're serious about wanting to influence your community, there's an opportunity right there. And we'll be hand in glove with you in that process. So start with people where you are, you know. Second uh, guideline I would give you is this. Begin to influence your community with the right message. What did Jesus tell this uh, uh, former demon-possessed man to say? Where did he tell him to go and what did he tell him to do? He told him where to go, go home. He told him what to say. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you. You see, that's witnessing. That's just sharing your faith story. Witnessing is simply telling your story of what Jesus has done in your life. You're going to encounter some situations, if you do that, where people are going to want to ask questions that, are on, that come from the other side of the moon. And they're going to ask questions about obscure biblical passages. Or they're going to want you to explain the book of Revelation in about 13 sentences or so. You know, lead them back. Um, and a great model of that is John 4 with Jesus and the woman at the well. He didn't know her. She didn't know him. 
but they developed a relationship first and talked about that and talked about water and the well and all this. And, you know, he, he began to bring her into the conversation. She wanted to wander it off about where she should worship and where would true worship be. And Jesus brought it right back to the water. You see, he brought it back to the water. And he, here's the thing about this is you, people can argue with you on other points and they can argue scripture. They can argue theology. But your story is your story. They cannot deny that. And so that's what you simply tell. You witness, you tell your story, it ought to be this. What your life was like before you met Christ. How you came to meet Christ. And number three, what he's done in your life since then. Just that simple. That's your story. Stick to it and tell it. Okay? That's what Jesus sent to sent demonize Dan out to do. He said, go tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And the scripture says, he went all through the Decapolis and people were amazed. They were amazed. Didn't say they were afraid like the people were when they saw him first, no longer demon possessed, but says they were amazed. He influenced that community. Then the third guideline I would give you is this. Begin to influence your community for the right reasons. Why did Dan, demonize Dan, or whatever you want to call him, go out into the cities? of the Decapolis and share his faith. It's because it became a priority in his life. It was because he had a love for Christ. It was because uh, he understood that he needed to obey what Jesus told him to do. And those same three things are what we need to look at as, as influence on us that will motivate us to want to influence our community. First of all is love. Yeah, we need to have a love for people who are lost, a love for our community, a love for our nation. You see, one of the great changes that's taken place in our country is it's not the same as it was 50 years ago. Our culture has changed. The cultural landscape has changed so dramatically that you really don't recognize America. And you think about our own area. We have right here in our church, week by week, by week day by day, in the early weekday education program, 11 different nationalities represented by our children. Now, who would have ever thought that coming to Columbia, South Carolina? If District 2 schools recognize 40-some languages spoken, think about the diversity we have here. They're my word. Think about what it is in, in, in New York and California and places like that. See, the cultural landscape has changed. We can't just retreat and say we'll never get America back like it used to be. Well, no, you, you probably won't. But if you're serious about influencing people and influencing your culture, you'll begin to influence people who come from different faith backgrounds or no faith backgrounds, and they will have the opportunity to encounter Jesus, and they will be changed, and we'll make it maybe even a better country. It's your only hope. But the motivating love factor has to be our love for Jesus Christ. Remember when we talked a couple of weeks ago about becoming a new person and the Apostle Paul talked about all things becoming new. He talked about he was compelled and what compelled him to share and to preach the good news. In 2 Corinthians 5 he said, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. You might want to circle that or underline that. We try to persuade men for Christ's love compels us. Now he gave two great reasons. First of all as a healthy fear uh, of the holiness of God. And the second is a compelling love of Jesus Christ. And that's the love that ought to motivate us to want to influence our culture. The second motivating factor should be obedience. So Jesus told that man, no, I don't want you to get in the boat and go with me. I've got something else I want you to do. I want you to, to stay here in your home region 
and influence your culture here. And he obviously obeyed. He obviously obeyed because it says all the people were amazed at his story. He did that. He went all around that region and he influenced people. There are some mandates that our Lord has given to us as well in the Scriptures. And that we would do well to remember them and to obey them. Like the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Therefore, go. Go is in the uh, imperative voice. It's a command that we go. Don't stay where you are, but go. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Go, Jesus knew we would be a going group of people. We go all the time. In fact, we only go too much. But he says, as you go, share your faith. Do that. Acts 1.8, Jesus says, And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, we're called to be and sent to be his witnesses. And then I always like what's said in 1 Peter 3.15, But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. You see, I take that one right there, that passage of Scripture, and I say, that's what hits us in everyday life. That people where you work, people where you go to school, people where you shop and all this, if they know you're a believer in Jesus Christ, eventually they're going to have a need in their life that they will ask you, what does your Christian faith do for you? How do you have a hope? What, what hope does it make in your life? You see, they're looking for an answer, and Jesus is the only answer. And they're looking at you. Don't pray for an armadillo. Ask God to open your mind and your mouth so you can speak. And tell them what hope you have in Christ. It's your story. Tell them what he did to change you. You've got to do that in obedience to what Jesus calls us to do. And then the third motivating factor has got to be a priority. It has to be a priority in our life. We don't do things or don't do things well unless they're a priority in our life. But if you trace through the Scriptures, you will find that, that God has always wanted the story of His love, even before Christ came and went to the cross, is that, that we who knew Him and loved Him, He even called the Jewish nation back then to be a light to the Gentiles, and they didn't want to do that. He's called us to the priority of revealing Him, sharing Him with other people. And it has to be a priority for us. Because out of everything else that's demanded upon us as a part of our Christian life, the most significant and important thing is when people come to know Christ. In Luke 15, 7, part of the, the three parables that Jesus tells about lost things, a coin, a sheep, and a son, in Luke 15, 7, and I'm going to give it to you in the message translation, says this, There's more joy in heaven over one sinner's rescued life than over 99 good people in no need of rescue. What, what do you think excites Jesus more than anything else? I think he, yeah, he's, he's impressed by thousands of people gathering for a, a, a Christian rally, like say um, at Passion Weekend, a couple of weekends ago, we had some of our students go to that. 
Uh, when we gather on Sunday mornings, those of us who are here, I think that's pleasing to him. People attending a Bible study, I think that pleases him as well. But if sharing our faith in Christ isn't our priority, he's not all that pleased with us. You see, I don't, I don't find anywhere else in the Scripture that it says the angels in heaven rejoice. They don't rejoice over 5,000 people at a conference. That's not what the Bible says. They don't rejoice over our gathering together and worshiping, though in some ways I think they do. You know, I'm not saying that's not important, but what does it specifically say the angels in heaven rejoice about? When one person comes to know Christ, that the angels in heaven rejoice. That means it's a priority for them. They want to see us Lead people to Christ. And that's how we'll change and influence our community. I discovered a name of somebody else this week that um, was an Englishman who was a, an evangelist. His name was Leonard Ravenhill. He later migrated to the United States and I think was down in Texas. And, and when he died, that's where he was. But it, this is one poem that he wrote. So we're going to have three points and end with a poem. Uh, but I want you to listen to the words because it, it speaks to us about making a resolution to influence our community. He said, could a sailor sit by idle if he heard the drowning cry? Could a doctor sit in comfort and just watch his patients die? Could a fireman stand aside, watch men burn and lend no hand? Can we sit at ease in church with the world around us damned? If you take those words in, they should be pretty profound words for you. And if you really embrace those words, then you ought to make being a witness a priority in your life. So I want to ask you to resolve, make it a resolution for this year, to be a positive influence on your community and share your faith in Christ. Would you do that? If you do, the angels in heaven will rejoice because people will respond. Father, we thank you for the story you've given us today, the life and ministry of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the challenge that it gives to us about being witnesses for you. Help us to examine our life, first of all, and see if we're in relationship with you, if we're right with you, if anything demon-wise that we need to get out of our life so that we'll be right with you. And then, Father, help us to prioritize our life so that compelled and mandated by your love and wanting to do that in obedience, we will be, we will be ready for the opportunity to witness for you and to share what you've done in our life. And we'll bring all the glory and praise to you as we see our community changed. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen.